Another Triple Six ABC Canberra podcast. To subscribe to any of our podcasts, go to abc.net.au slash Canberra. My guest, she's getting a cup of tea ready. It's a kind of time, isn't it? You just kind of lean back and go, oh, okay, longer conversation. And recently during the Rio Paralympics, I had a chat with Deborah Poulton, who worked for the UK's Channel 4 on the groundbreaking British Paralympics. When we first met the superhumans, and this approach by Channel 4 changed attitudes to disability. And it was just fantastic to find out that it was a Canberran born and raised that was one of the key people responsible for this. It was Deborah who urged Channel 4 to use the talents of fellow Australian Adam Hills, who's now gone on to host the very successful Last Leg program. I love that program. Deborah is back with her young family, living and working amongst us. So I thought, look, actually... Due for a longer conversation. She's here with her tea. Wondering where my biscuit is. (laughs) I don't think we can run to a biscuit. It's ABC rules. Oh, that's no good. No No biscuits. We can can give you a glass of water. Oh, I've got one of those. (laughs) Your ABC. (laughs) Thanks for agreeing to this because I I loved the the first conversation we had. Oh, my pleasure. And your passion in this area. Well, thank you for inviting me back. Oh, look, it's wonderful. As I said, I wanted to flesh it out and... You sent me some great notes, and if I can start with the fact that you are related to the late, great Canberra media icon that is George Barlin. Yeah, he was my father's first cousin. So my father grew up on a dairy farm in Lansdowne. In fact, he was a dairy farmer before he moved down here to become a public servant. Talk about a switch. Um, And Dad was cousin to George Barlin. There were many, many Barlins and a very large family. And every year when we'd traipse up to Taree to visit that side of the family, we'd be introduced to many, many Barlins. But then my father and mother settled here and we were lucky to have some of Dad's Barlin cousins down here, one of which was George. People ask me, you know, all the, you know, the, the, the famous people. And I suppose George is famous. <laughs> the, you know, the, but look, that mm. interview I got to do with George and Iris at the start of the year, that beautiful, beautiful couple, yeah. both turning 100 yeah. this year in their own home, was one of the great privileges of the job, can yeah, I say. I what lovely people. Yeah. He's yeah. been a huge influence on you. Um, yeah, my, my mother laughs when I say this because my... I have memories as a child of my father going to visit George at work and so I got to go to the TV channel that George worked at and I've always had an interest in my... I've always had a bug in me to work in the media and I've always been particularly interested in television and I have to take it back to that point as a very young, impressionable girl in Canberra where I was growing up here in the 70s and 80s. I didn't think Canberra was the most exciting place on earth. I didn't and when I went to visit the TV channel, that was exciting. So I think that's what created the bug in me to get into media. Did he know that? Did you ever get to tell him Um, that? I don't think, I don't, I don't recall. I was young then and I never talked to him too much as a, Mm. as an older person. And I got to know some of the other Barlins, Mark Barlin, who works in television, um, and some of the others, and and they know about my background in television. But no, and I saw George this year. I was lucky to see him before he passed away. But no, we didn't have that conversation. But that's part of the influence and that's part of doing this spot. Deborah Poulton is my guest this afternoon in Canberra Close-Up. Just to, to get back to your own parents and Lansdowne, we know this from, from George actually, but um, your dad, Ralph, came from Lansdowne too and again mm. from a dairy farm because George Barlin, I said, oh, you're a dairy, dairy farmer's kid, you must love milk. And he went, I hate the stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't recall. I think my dad loved milk. I actually don't, I don't. I can't recall whether he did or not. I think he did. But yeah, my dad was very proud to say he was from a dairy farm in Lansdowne. And we've. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad's parents had moved into Tari by then, and so we spent all of our summer holidays in Tari. And one of the things that my dad loved doing was to take us out for a drive to Lansdowne to sh- to show us where he grew up in the old farm, and it was a beautiful spot, an absolutely beautiful spot. There was a part of me, I think, as I got older, that used to think, oh, I wish Dad had remained a dairy farmer. It would have been quite fun. You are yet but, young, Deborah. Yeah, well, yes, never too late to start a dairy farm. Pretty tough time to be going into the dairy industry. Let's, <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. Let's face it. And what about your mum? Tell me about your mum. Uh, my mum, well, my father met my beautiful mother in Tari. They got married up there in the Methodist Church. Um, and moved back, uh, moved down to Canberra here together. And my mother, mother became a community worker. And she's one of those people now. She's celebrating her 50th year in Canberra this year. Oh, congratulations. And yeah. because she's been a social worker for the large part of those 50 years, you can't go anywhere in Canberra without my mother knowing somebody. It's really quite alarming how regularly <laughs> that re- how regular it happens. She just knows so many people through the amazing work she's done through community work. But that then becomes the beauty of a community like this one, doesn't yes. it? Yes, yeah, because it's a capital city, isn't it? But it's mm. a small, I mean, particularly when I've lived in London for 20 years, coming back here, I think to myself, I'm in the capital city of Canberra, but uh, capital city of Australia, but it's a really small country town. <laughs> yeah. um, why did they come to Canberra in 1966? Um, because there was work to work. And I think at that point, um, Dad staying on well sorry my father when dad moved here the dairy farm was already a closed shop his parents had moved into Tari um, and so it was purely for work reasons there was a lot of work down here in the public service dad got a job in the public service um, in the department of industry I think primary industry uh, so were pure work reasons but my mum and dad you know we've got wonderful pictures back from 1968 66 to 68 when they built their house in Chifley and the pictures of Woden with it just being like Gungarland was a few years back um, or how Malonglo Valley is now are just amazing and, and mum and dad um, really they they were foundation members of many different things here mm. and they became very very ingrained in Canberra and they and they loved living here mm. and my mother still loves living here you um were just a twinkle in her eye then how many how you were how, of how I'm many I'm the middle of 3 I have oh, a middle child a yes, misunderstood elder, middle child or yes not? I'm middle I'm misunderstood middle child aren't we all <laughs> uh, but no I have an older sister and a younger brother how would you describe your childhood in Canberra well it's uh, yeah let me let me just take a moment um <laughs> It's Wonderful. All right. We can take criticism. You, know, you are no, no. you are a child of the city. You're allowed to say what I, you like. It's interesting, isn't it, Alex? When you have your own children, it really makes you reflect back on your own childhood. And I don't think it was until my daughter was born, and possibly until she was a toddler, and there I was living in busy London with her as a toddler, and I reflected back on my upbringing in Canberra, and I thought, wow, I was lucky because. I swear by the age of four, my playground was a two-kilometre radius that stretched up Mount Taylor. And Mm. the freedom I had was amazing. And, you know, I was very lucky. I had parents that really appreciated Tibimbillis and the Cotter, so we spent a lot of time in those places. So to answer your question, I think my childhood was actually quite perfect. But I know by the time I got to being 16, 17, 18, I couldn't wait to break out of Canberra. I had to break out of Canberra. It just didn't offer enough. For I think me back a lot then. of people can relate to that. Yeah. 
I mean, and that, but, that's, but that's possibly, a good thing. But possibly not so much these days. Mm, Maybe Canada. I think that, that has changed. Yeah, and I, and I hope it has because I sincerely want my children to stay closer to me. <laughs> that's why you've come home in a way, <laughs> yes, isn't it? Yes. Um, Deborah Poulton is my guest in Canberra Close-Up. And, of course, you know the deal. We ask uh, our lovely guests to choose music because we think it's very telling. <laughs> and I think it is in a way. So what have you chosen for us? What, what would you like me to play? Um, well, I've chosen my first song as a Billy Bragg song, and I cannot confess to being a, um expert on Billy Bragg. I can't. But I chose a Billy Bragg song because I, when I moved to London, I was so gung-ho. I was one of these early 20-something-year-olds living in London feeling like I was invincible. And I met my um, met the man who became my husband, and he was a big Billy Bragg fan, and we went to see Billy Bragg live um, a couple of times. And this song, Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, that I've chosen, is one that my husband would always sing. And, you know, Billy Bragg's a left-wing Revolution is just a T-shirt away. Exactly. And, I, and, and you, oh, you got my line, Alex. No. That's what I was going to say. My, I've got great visions of my husband standing in the kitchen singing at the top of his voice, the revolution is just a T-shirt away. And so I had to – I chose this song because it, it, it for me, really summarises those early heady days in London that I had once I moved there. Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline. So join this struggle while you might. The revolution is just a One of the great call to arms songs. It yeah. <laughs> yeah, does make me smile. <laughs> Deborah Fulton is my guest in Canberra Close Up this afternoon. It's 15 degrees in town. You beamed up, Scotty. Uh, I hope you're singing along to that. Uh, Deborah, great choice. Uh, well, I, I, it's my husband. I have to thank him. He introduced thank me to the wonderful world of Billy Bragg. <laughs> <laughs> because, Deborah, just to, to pick up your story, you, you wanted to get out of Canberra, but you shunned university. Yes. Well, yeah, I did. I chose instead to move to Sydney and where I landed a great job, which was a shame because I started, (laughs) I think I would have, and I have been to university since, but I would have gone to university earlier, except I found myself working for Microsoft. And that was in the heady days when Apple was just a little speck. Mm. Well, no, Apple was more than that, but Microsoft really had the front foot. Microsoft was the giant. And um, I worked in the headquarters in North Ryde in Sydney and that to me felt like my university experience. I got, I was there for four years. I worked with a great crowd of people that not only did I work with every day, I socialised with them every night. Um, I got a huge amount of experience both in the human resources capacity and a marketing capacity. They sent me to Seattle to learn things. They sent me to Tokyo to learn things. It was just a, it was a really fantastic that's experience. A, that's a gap. Gap experience, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. That's, well, that's what, what you did before like. university. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it was a fantastic gap not experience. A, not a bad way to go. But, um, and, I, and I loved um, – I just it really gave me a taste for doing exciting mm. things because it was such a high-octane work environment, which I imagine people who now work at Google, you know, have and Facebook, et cetera. But um, 
Yeah, I felt really lucky to live there. It was really, really. So you I met Bill there. Gates really and Paul Allen. I did. Bill Gates and Paul Allen used to fly into Sydney. Uh, not it, not every year, but I mean, the four years that I worked there, I think twice they did. And we would have we we would all gather in a room and we'd hear from them. But then we'd go out with them and we'd go out dancing and drinking with them. <laughs> and it was it was just a fantastic. Bill Gates dances. Yes, absolutely. He does. He does. He's a very nice man. He's a very, very kind man. Oh, look, look, look. Yeah. You know. But we always used to shake his hand and then come away going, oh, why didn't he just slip me a million bucks? <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> Damn you, Bill. Yeah, Have you, are, are there, is there a story that you can slip us about Bill Gates and Paul Allen from, you know, from that time? That, um, 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 only that they're really good dancers. Okay. <laughs> and I danced with Bill Gates myself. Um, and that he is a he, no. How would you describe his dancing. dance style? Um, like a daggy dad. Oh, gorgeous! <laughs> and he was the best the ones. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, very nice. Man. Deborah very Poulton nice is, my, is my guest. I'm I'm trying to just get the you know the, the little Bill Gates <laughs> goss out of her this afternoon. Loyal employee to the end. Um, the influence on you though of that of two you know great big thinkers. Yeah. You know, on a different spectrum to many of us. Yeah, but it's interesting though, Alex, because I think that influenced me in terms of wanting to – it made me very ambitious in my professional career. I wanted to keep doing exciting, high-octane things. And, but, and, and also it gave me the opportunity to travel to some places in the world like Tokyo, Seattle, where I saw the world. But it wasn't until I actually left Microsoft. Microsoft enabled me the chance to travel – the world further um, because of its fantastic remuneration <laughs> benefits at the time back in those days. And I then was able to leave Microsoft and I flew to Hong Kong and I travelled by train through China, across Russia. I got to London and then I went to Africa. And I, spent, and, and I think it was those things that really shaped mm. um, a hunger I had in me to um, – I really believed we were all equal. I did and I, and I sort of – and I took that into my work – in London, I do you think. think it was the influence of of working for Bill Gates and Paul I think Alan it was I think it was more the influence of travelling through Africa yeah. that right. provided me with that hunger. Tell me about that influence. What did you see? Well, I spent six months travelling from Nairobi and Kenya down to um, Harare and Zimbabwe. Lots of people have done that, I'm, and I'm sure anybody who's done that and has spent the amount of time I spent in Africa um, comes away with a very different feeling about the world um, and a very different, a very a great appreciation for the world and the different people and the different um, levels of, of how we all live. And I, yeah, yeah. And I, and I really, and I, it's funny, I came back from that first trip to Africa. I came back to London six months later and I'd been everywhere and I'd, I'd had some amazing experiences. Um, and then I was really determined to continue working in Africa and I tried hard to get some work back in Zimbabwe, but it didn't turn out. Um, but instead I then found myself working for a broadcaster in London where I was able to do some things that ticked the boxes that I wanted to achieve had I gone to Zimbabwe to work. Is it those experiences... I'm you now. <laughs> is it those experiences, though, that you come back to a country like the UK or Australia and go, not everyone gets to live like this? As in, you know, the the kind of experience that you see in Africa. Yeah. When you travel across that, and and there's if you've grown up, especially if you're raised in in Canberra. Oh yeah, I think everyone in Canberra should go to Africa <laughs> for at least a month <laughs> to come back to appreciate more mm. what you have, because you know it's uh, it's a very um, common thing to say, isn't it? Appreciate what you have, but I don't think you truly can until you've been 
to places in the world that live a lot differently to us. Not everyone really gets to grow up like this. Things. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you are on Triple Six, Deborah. So just that was probably as much as your university education as yeah. a university would be? Yes. That, yes. that experience? Yes, absolutely. What did it teach you, do you think? Um, oh, it taught me um, to take nothing for granted. It taught me that we should never treat anybody different, whatever, wherever they come from, whatever job they're doing, whatever gender they are, whether they have a disability or not a disability. It taught me all of those things. It's funny, though, it wasn't just my travelling through, my extensive travelling through Africa that did that. I also realised when I look back on my life, I also think about my many trips up to the Manning Valley region when I was a child, where I saw or I heard a lot of um, casual racism, Um, you know, outside of Tari back in the 70s and 80s the town of Perfleet existed with um, the Aborigines living there. And, uh, yeah, and, and all my summer holidays of going into Tari, I'd hear all this casual racism just flying all around me. And it really, I believe, really shaped me. By the time I was in my 20s and I'd been to Africa and I'd grown up with that, I was really angry about the inequalities of the world. It really put a fire in my belly because it made me angry. Why did people think that just because of gender or colour that people were different? See, this is why we have these conversations. It's so interesting to see what has formed people. And Deborah Fulton uh, went on to, to shape and, and change things um, at, at Channel 4. She will continue to do that too. Don't think that draws a line under it. You are on Triple Six, Alex Stone with you. We'll just go to a bit more music before the news headlines. Deborah, what would you like me to play? Um, oh, I'd like to ch- you to play a, my song from Birdie. Oh. Now, Birdie... <laughs> I know Birdie. I'm so pleased you know Birdie because a lot of people do and a lot of people don't. She's never really quite hit major mainstream, I don't think. She gave a concert at the Opera House. Oh, okay. My teenager at the time. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. I was not living here when that happened. Um, I'm fascinated by Birdie and the reason I chose her is because this song I've chosen was particularly important to me in the time I was working in London on the London 2012 Paralympic Games. I was working six, seven days a week. I was working very long hours in London. By then, my husband and I had had two children and moved out to live in West Sussex. So I had a commute on a train, only 42 minutes. Some people commuted longer living within London. But um, every day, and I often would leave the office very, very late, and I'd get on the train and I would put my iPod on and I'd relax. I'd take a deep breath and I'd relax. And somebody I knew had recommended this birdie girl to me who was only a young I think she was 15 yeah, she was. when she recorded this mm. album album and um and I love her background her real name or her, yeah her real name is J- Jasmine Lucilla Elizabeth Jennifer van de Bogard <laughs> awesome <laughs> and it's so exotic and she's got you know interesting parents I think her mother is an esteemed opera or um pianist um and Birdie has just the most beautiful voice. So when I was recommended this album and I'd listened to it, it was my segue between the busy, frantic work in London and trying to do all these things to make the Paralympics the best we could make it to then getting back home into my West Sussex house where my two young children were. And this song helped me make that She played at the opening, didn't she, of the Paralympics? Uh, she did because I can remember it. She was on stage and that fabulous dancer. But not, I don't think it was this particular song. No, it wasn't this no, song. But, but she, she played. played. Yes, yes. And he danced yeah. and went up. It was yes. a magical you know, I actually moment. Can't, and I feel terrible now because I can't remember the actual song, but it wasn't this, this song. But, yeah, she's, a, she's a beautiful. Mm. If, if anyone 
hasn't heard her sing, they need to hear her sing because there's something pure about her voice. And I've forgotten the name it's of the dancer. He dances mainly on his on his hands. Yes. Cool. Yes. And it was the yes. combination of the two of them and then he flew up into the air yes. to Birdie's music. Yeah. I, I remember it distinctly. Do, I do. I've got chills up thing. my spine, Deborah Poulton. Let's hear Birdie. <laughs> About homesickness for you, Deborah Poulton, that song. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that really resonated with me, that line. And at the Paralympics, Birdie's at the opening, she sang Bird Girl and Anthony and the Johnsons cover. And David Toole um, was the, the dancer. He does aerial ballet. Um, he does it mainly on his hands and it featured 42 volunteers with disabilities. It was a magic yeah. and, for me, unforgettable moment. Yeah, I was busy working at that moment. <laughs> I'm so glad it resonated with you like that because well, there were beautiful moments. You had an audience back home lapping it up. And you're with Alex Sloan this afternoon. And my guest in Canberra Close-Up is Deborah Poulton. Uh, Canberra bred, born and bred, popped away for a while, <laughs> did some very significant things. And uh, she's back with her lovely family living amongst us. And uh, I thought it was time for a, a longer conversation. And uh, we're, we're only part way there, so we've got a lot more to talk about. Um, so I, I guess that when you travel, you do kind of get the whole message about haves and have not, about injustices. Mm. Don't you? It's yeah, you do. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Some people possibly don't. They blithely go where they go <laughs> and stay in hotels. But that's why gap years are important. I know. And I spent six months in Africa in a tent. <laughs> I think I stayed, spent one night in Meekles in Harare, which was a beautiful five-star hotel. And that was, that was an opportunity to have a good shower. <laughs> but the rest was mixing with local people, living in tents, mm. visiting local communities. It's something you, you don't want your young people to miss. In no, a way, you don't. It? It's no. hard. It's tough. Yeah. It, it can be dangerous. Yes. But you want, but I, I, yes, I agree with all of that, but I really want to encourage my children to go out and have those, make those journeys mm. because I think it's really important to come back to have seen that's to see, to have seen the world, to have seen mm. some other parts mm. of the world and how people live. It really helps shape you. So that absolutely was mm. a formative, so far a formative I, experience. Yeah, I don't want my children to have a sense of entitlement, <laughs> to have that, you know, I'm, I'm owed a living, I'm owed a job. I don't, don't want that. That's, that's not how we should live. It's, it's the tough one for parents, mm. isn't it? Because mm. you want to keep them safe. Yeah, you do. Richard, Richard Roxborough was just talking about this yesterday, right. the same thing. Saying, yeah. you know, you want to keep them safe, but you want them to be the best human beings mm. they can be. And, and to do that, means... they need to put themselves mm. out there. And parents have got to allow them to do that yeah. as well. Yeah. Tell me how your television career at Channel 4 started. And just remind us what Channel 4 is. So Channel 4 is a public broadcaster in the UK, a commercial broadcaster, that was established, um, gosh, I think it's 30 years ago now, 30, 30 uh, and some years ago now, to create a platform for alternative voices. So in the UK, people pay a licence fee for BBC programming and the BBC do a brilliant job of multiple channels and multiple radio platforms, etc. But Channel 4 was created to 
create, to, to provide that alternative voice, to really focus on stories of underrepresented groups give um, and minority groups. Mm. And that was particularly attractive to you? That's... Yes. Yeah, well, I loved, I love Channel 4. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think you see the best of some of their programming out here. I think the ABC play a lot of their programming. Um, they do some really fantastic um, documentary stories, um, documentary series around tran- the transgender community. Um, they did a fantastic series called The Undateables, which caused huge furore back in... 2000, I think it was 2011, actually, when we when, when they launched the Undateables, and it was a look at the love lives of people with mental health issues and intellectual disabilities, and that title got people watching, and it and it achieved fantastic mm. audience figures, which is what you need with programming like that. You don't. It's it's one thing to do programming about mental health issues or transgender community or, or whatever, but if nobody watches them, what difference are you making? So Channel Four had this great way of creating great programming content to give minority voices a platform, but then really creating a splash to make people Got watch. everyone talking yeah, around the water talking. cooler. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes that can be yes. controversial. Yes. And but, but that's what I loved about Channel 4. They weren't afraid of controversy. We, we, had a, um, we had a mission statement when I worked there, which was make trouble, inspire change. And that was oh, that was what just a great organisation to yeah. to yeah. work for. Yeah. Yeah, you'd wake up every day going, "I'm going to go to work today and make trouble and <laughs> stir the change. pot." What's not to love? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's you know about good and positive yes. change. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely. It wasn't making trouble for no reason. No, really. it was just making to be naughty. trouble to <laughs> yeah. try and raise awareness about really important issues and to try and make people see. The inequities that exist in the world and to challenge them. You thank a key mentor, don't you? Uh, yes, I do. Should I name her? Yes, go for it. <laughs> her name's Karen Brown. She was at the time when I first. So I was. I arrived in London having left Microsoft. Um, thinking, gosh, I really must work. I've been through Africa and I, I'd, I'd, spent, I'd spent 10 to 11 months travelling and I really needed to work. And so I became a temp. I signed up to a temp agency. I was only young in my early 20s. And I got a, a, quite a few uh, gigs at Channel 4. And I was lucky to come across a lady called Karen Brown who was head of factual programming back then. And she... Her and I got on like a house on fire. She used to say to me, "You're very, you're very upfront. You're an extremely honest Australian, aren't you?" And I think, well, no, I'm just. Isn't that a tautology? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but a lot of people at Channel always say that to me. They go, oh, "We like you. You're very upfront." And I think, well, I'm just saying it how it is. And if you only you would do the same. <laughs> anyway, but Karen and I established a very um, great working relationship, and she mentored me through and really helped develop my editorial eye. She sent me. She put, I went and did a lot of training courses at the BBC. I learned how to direct. I learned how to produce. And she, she just really – she invested in me. Mm. She invested in my career. And so we're still good friends. Key figure. Lady. And does that then want let make you want to do the same for someone – I think it's really important yeah. that we all mentor where we can. And I, and I – and in my last – um, few years at Channel 4, I did act as a mentor to young women entering the um, uh, broadcasting landscape. Yeah. Uh, Deborah, just before we go to a bit more music, um, and we, when I first met you, we, we talked about the incredible London 2012 Paralympics coverage and the superhumans, and, and I think it just it changed 
It changed minds. It was meant to. Yes. <laughs> it was so great. Before, <laughs> it had to. before you got there, to, though, you worked on 2000, a project partnership between Channel 4 and Oxfam. How important yeah, so, was that project? Well, that, well, it, well, it wasn't a big project in terms of um, the size that the Paralympic Games project became. But it was just, it was back in 2000 when it was the millennium year, remember, Alex? And everyone, it was funny because we were all sitting around going, how, what can we do to mark the millennium? What can we do? And John Snow, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a Channel 4 news reader. He's been around for a long time. He's a wonderful man. He proposed to Channel 4 that we, why don't we take the, the Greenwich Meridian line and look at the countries that it runs through and why don't we, in the year of the millennium, look at how people are living along that line. And so that, that was the idea. And I, I, he went to Karen with that idea. I was working for Karen by then as an editorial administrator. I was commissioning small films and projects. And I ended up working on that project with John and we got Oxfam involved. And I was lucky then to have the opportunity to travel with Oxfam to Mali and Burkina Faso, which are two of the countries mm. in West Africa living uh, uh, on the Meridian Line. And it was just about telling stories of how people were living. And so it would enable an opportunity to look at the inequity between the different countries. Um, right up your... Yeah, and, and, to focus, <laughs> and to focus on some of the great things that were happening in those countries in this year that everyone felt was so important and yet it came and went and nothing really happened and we moved on. <laughs> but it was, a, it was, yeah, it was a very... And again, I, that project really, again, was igniting that fire in my belly about equity and equality mm. for all... Deborah Poulton, my uh, wonderful guest in Canberra Close Up this afternoon. It is 19 to 3, 16 degrees. Sun is coming out, Deborah. It's getting <laughs> little, warmer. It is getting warmer. <laughs> Don't worry, in February and March, you'll be going, when is it going to cool I down? Know. I know. <laughs> um, it's um, amazing to see Canberra like this at this time of the year. Um, to, a, to the next song, which one would you like me to play? Well, this song um, is uh, right at the centre of the Paralympic games um, broadcast and it still is this this song was used um, in Channel 4's coverage of the Rio games this song is used in Adam Hill's last leg program and it's important to say that the last leg was born during the London 20 we created that show for the London 2012 Paralympic Games and it's just gone on to great heights ever Wonderful. since yeah. um, but this song um, so can I quickly talk about sure. Channel 4's um, Paralympic Games promotion because you know, one of the things that we really needed to do to ensure that these Paralympic Games were the best ever, which was something we'd absolutely committed to, was create a promotion that was just going to just really make people stand up and pay attention because um, everything we'd, every, all the research up until the um, the Paralympic Games happened was telling us that people considered it just a sideshow to the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games were the big event. Everyone watched the Olympic Games. The Paralympic Games were just this nice little um, thing that followed. It was a bit of a bit of a, bit of a secondary act. So we said we wanted to create a really, really big marketing campaign that would absolutely challenge that perception. And so we did. And the wonderful filmmaker we worked with that made the film uh, that was our promotion attached this soundtrack to mm. it. And it was interesting because... It made grown men cry it on did make, Gruen. It did make grown men cry on <laughs> Russell Gruen. Howcroft. I know, it did. And also, <laughs> what I loved, and I've, it's funny, yeah, what I loved, when this, when this promotion was released on Channel 4 in July 2012, it was using this song by Public Enemy. I think the song was 10 years old, and I can't remember exactly. I think it was 10 years old. Well, anyway, it hadn't been in the charts forever. This promotion hit the airwaves and that song went to number four in the UK charts because of our promotion. It was amazing. And this was the soundtrack to the summer of 2012. So... 
Yo, Chuck, what's the move, man? I was on my way up here to the studio, you know what I'm saying? And this brother stopped me and asked me, yo, what's up with that brother, Chucky D? He sway nice. I said, yo, the brother don't sway nice. He knows he's nice, you know what I'm saying? So, Chuck, I got a feeling you're turning into a public enemy, man. Now, remember that line you was kicking to me on the way out to L.A. Lounge in Queens while we was in the car on our way to the shop? Well, yo, right now, kick the bass for them brothers and let them know what goes on. Bigger than Jack and that sagging. His brother backwards, I'ma leave it at that. Daddy got nothing to do with that. Shut the backs, expose those cats. Deborah, you wanted to point out, it's got very key lyrics in this song. Well, it, I mean, it's got a lot of lyrics, so it's very densely. Um, <laughs> full of lyrics, but there was one line in it particularly that says, thank you for letting us be ourselves. And that became a mantra for the Paralympians during the 2012 Games. And um, I don't want to blow my own trumpet here, but we won a BAFTA for our Channel 4 Paralympic Games coverage. Blow your BAFTA And when we won that BAFTA in May 2013, Adi Adepatan, um, who was part of our coverage, he's a wonderful Nigerian um, former Paralympian, he took to the stage and said, I want to thank Channel 4 for letting us be ourselves because that was... And he was speaking for a lot of Paralympians and this song, whenever I hear that lyric, I get a few shivers on my spine. <laughs> These brothers running around hard-headed They get a little jealous, you know what I'm saying? Just like that. I will forever see the images that went with that track that great. you produced. Yeah, it was... Great. No wonder you won a BAFTA. Deborah Fulton is my guest this afternoon and uh, making key change. There's just no doubt. You changed minds, didn't you? You changed attitudes. Well, research um, proves, shows that we did, yeah. Um, We were challenging perceptions in the UK before the Games that said that people didn't care about disability sport much. Um, they didn't. They felt they were baffled a little bit by it, particularly with the confusing classifications that govern Paralympic sport. They also, our research also showed that people were, some people were offended by seeing disabled people on screen. They didn't want to see um, missing limbs. And we got that research and said, no, we're going to challenge that because you've got to, you got to. We wanted to normalise disability. We wanted to. I think it was Stella Young, who the great said, late. yeah, the great late mm. Stella Young, who once said that just because I'm disabled doesn't mean I'm special. And a her lot of, parents taught her that, right? Yeah, mm. and and it was interesting when we first began. So when when we first began the Paralympic journey back in 2010, that's when we began our preparation for the games. We got involved a lot of former and current Paralympians, we rang them up and we said, we want you to come in and join our gang in putting the best Paralympic Games coverage on air. And we wanted their voices because we wanted to hear from them what they thought the perceptions were of their sport. And a lot of them told us that. They said, I'm sick of people thinking I'm special because I'm disabled and patting us on the back and going... Oh, there, there, you had a go. You had a go. Isn't that brilliant? The inspiration porn. Yeah, the inspiration porn effect. And um, so we were determined to smash that. And our conclusion was that the only way we could smash that was by normalising disability. So we vowed at that point to put as much Paralympic Games coverage on air as we possibly could. We put we put as much Paralympic Games coverage on air as, equal to what the BBC did with, did with the Olympic Games. And that was a very uncommon thing to do because even recently in Rio, NBC in America, for example, don't even show any Paralympic Games coverage live. They show a highlight show a week later and 
in 2012, we were looking back at past Paralympic Games and we looked at the 20, 2000, sorry, the 2008 Beijing Games and even the BBC, who do a wonderful job, they'd just done a, a highlights program each night and we said, no, 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 we need to, we need to put this wall-to-wall on our screens and we need to get Paralympics, Paralympians involved and other disabled voices involved, people who can talk, people with disabilities who can talk about what we're watching mm. and really debunk it for us and then people will engage with it rather than just going, oh, there's the Paralympics, I'm a bit confused. Oh, isn't it nice they're all having a go, aren't they special? Australians really got it and I hope that wasn't just because Australians <laughs> smashed it at the London Olympics. Our, our no, wonderful athletes. But Australians got it we because... We did really get it. But the Australians mm. got it because the ABC had been doing wall-to-wall coverage yeah. of the Paralympics and we took a lead from um, the ABC and stole Adam Hills <laughs> off them. <laughs> well stolen. Yeah. And <laughs> because, gosh, that show, that again is breaking a lot of paradigms. Yeah. And that, that show sort of turbocharged everything we were doing because every night that show... So we broadcast the last leg for the first time at the London 2012 Paralympic Games and we put it on every night at the end of the evening. It was about 10 o'clock. And there was Adam Hills in the studio with a bunch of Paralympians who had competed that day or were going to compete. Um, and then he brought Alex Brooker in and Josh Whittacombe and they talked about what we were watching and they laughed about it. And that was the important thing because that was the other thing that our Paralympians told us and which Stella Young has talked about. We didn't want people to think oh, you've got to take this awfully serious because people with disabilities are having a go. We wanted people to go, no, no, they're just like you and I. They're just, they're not special. They're just people who have got a few little differences doing extraordinary things like our Olympians do. And so Adam Hill's show really got to the heart of that by Humor. pointing, you know, fun at stuff and making people laugh and realising that it is okay to laugh and say rude things about Paralympians if they warrant it, just as Olympians <laughs> might do. <laughs> you are on Triple Six. Deborah Fulton is with me. And uh, as you heard, she's at Canberra and she was one of the key people working on that groundbreaking coverage of the London 2012 Paralympic Games. And then you made the decision to, to leave, didn't you, to, to leave Channel 4. Was that hard? No, because I um, when my first child was born... <laughs> Back in 2002, that's when I first started getting um, the the seed for wanting to return back to Australia, and um, you wanted and, them to climb trees and yeah, be I, wanted under the Australian... to, I wanted them to be under the Australian sun and under the big Australian sky. But at the time, that wasn't you know my husband and my careers meant that that wasn't possible, and so it's interesting because. When I played that birdie song earlier and it says, um, uh, what does it say? <laughs> the homesick. Um, people. Uh, people who need people. Um, and if you're homesick, sit, give right. me your hand and you'd hold it. I was really homesick during the Paralympic Games. But once I'd been offered that opportunity to project lead that coverage, I knew I wasn't going anywhere for four years. But throughout those four years where I was working so hard to deliver with that wonderful team of people I worked with, that game's coverage, I never lost sight of the fact that I was coming back to Australia. And um, So is your husband Australian? No, he's British, no. So no how's but when he, he asked, how's he going? No, because well, he's going great, but when he <laughs> asked me to marry him back in 1999, I said to him, that's a wonderful offer, <laughs> but until you've been... Put that on hold. <laughs> no, I said to him, but until you've been to Australia and you can imagine yourself living there, I cannot marry you <laughs> because I knew... I was always going to return here because the skies and the the eucalyptus trees 
and my my mother, <laughs> which is so important to me. That's immensely practical in the face of I'm love. I'm a very practical person, yes. How did he take that? Um, he said, okay, so we came out to Australia back in 1999. And he said, yep, it's a nice place. I can imagine myself living there. But but he was digging his heels in and before the Paralympic Games came up, he would, he would have kept digging his heels in. <laughs> so when the Paralympic Games... Um, when I was working on those Paralympic Games, I was very focused and I negotiated with my employer, Channel 4, that when the Games were over, I was going to take a sabbatical to come back to Australia to bring the kids back for three months just to really get a sense that we were right to move back and I was granted that and that's what I did. Mm. And then I left Channel 4 to, to then help provide me the time to make all the plans that one requires to relocate a family from the southeast of England to the southeast of Canberra, uh, the southeast Deborah, of Australia. It's very clear sighted. <laughs> so not all of us can do uh, this. This well, is very well. Just yeah, I'm a I'm a practical person. But I. But it's interesting because I, I came back from my sabbatical in um, Canberra, absolutely knowing that it was the right thing to do to move back. I left Channel Four, and I then acted as a broadcast consultant working to I worked with the Russian broadcaster I worked with the Japanese broadcaster on helping them shape their Paralympic Games coverage for the Sochi Winter Paralympic Games and I also did some further work with Channel 4 on helping shape their Rio bid so it worked out very nicely and working as a consultant allowed me that time to you know I'd I'd go in and I'd do my work with the Russian broadcaster then I'd come home and and organize the shipping container when we were going to ship our household <laughs> contents to Australia. So it was a really good work. Well. Deborah Fulton is my guest uh, this afternoon in Canberra Close Up. You, so many great moments, but I can't go past this one because you've had your portrait hung in the National Portrait <laughs> Gallery in London in recognition of, and yeah. I'll quote, those who helped shape the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Yes, that, I think that, I think that I've had a few surreal experiences in my life. <laughs> who painted your portrait? Or was it a no, photo? No, it, it was a, a photo. photo. Okay. But I think having had my portrait hung in the National Portrait Gallery in Trafalgar Square, Square was truly one of the most surreal experiences of my life. And it came about, it was quite early on in the piece. L- London really embraced the Paralympic Games. It wasn't just us, Channel 4. It was the fact that the UK was very proud that the Paralympic Games were returning to the spiritual home of the Games because they began back in Stoke Mandeville uh, in England back in 1948. So the whole of the UK, David Cameron was involved, Boris Johnson, they were all very, we were all very excited about returning these games. And so as a result of that, the National Portrait Gallery decided that they wanted to curate an exhibition of photographs, photograph portraits of all the people who were making it happen. And I was, got chosen to be one of those people. So my portrait hung in the National Portrait. It was a very large one too. Good choice. And my mother never got to the UK to oh. see it, but my auntie did. So that was wonderful. So but that's one of your yes. regrets. Yes, that was one. That was one of my regrets. Oh. Yeah. So, and I haven't even got in the fact that you knew Richie Benno and yes, quite well. Yes, because I got my sports broadcasting training being a deputy editor on the um, Test cricket coverage. So you used to sit years. in the box, and I used to him. sit in the commentary box next to Richie Benno and many other beautiful famous cricketers, but I got to know Richie and his beautiful wife, Daphne, quite well, which is lovely. Uh, you are on Triple Six, Deborah. See, I had to get you back a second time. It almost feels like a third time. <laughs> how how is it in much. Canberra? Is it, is, it, is it going well? Is it? Yes, it is. Yes, it, it is. I, I'm so happy to be back here. My kids are really happy here. They love it. We're living in the lovely Woden Valley. Um, where they can walk and ride to school. My husband loves bird life. He loves cycling, so he was made to live in Canberra. Um, I'm working in the higher education sector, which is really interesting. I really enjoy that. 
Um, I'm really happy to be back. People always ask me, do you miss London? And I, and when I go, I saw Bridget Jones recently. It's hilarious. And I, and I loved it. But I'm watching Bridget Jones and I'm thinking, oh, look, there's London Bridge and oh, I miss all those parts of London. But I, I, I've, I had my fill of London and I'll always love it, but I didn't need to live and work there anymore. It's exhausting. It is lovely to have you home. Living and working amongst us, Deborah Poulton, we're proud of you. Thanks for all you did and keep doing. Thank you, Alex. Truly. kind of you to say. Oh, oh no. To, to be a change maker, to change minds, it's not an easy thing to do and you and your team have done that and you will do so much more. It's lovely to have you, as I said, living and working amongst Do I Do I go to the killers? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is just the soundtrack to our family in the car. <laughs> We love the killers, and we and when we left London, when we left the UK to come back here, we did a twelve day trip around California, Nevada, and Arizona, and this was the soundtrack tri- track of our American road trip. And when we got to Nevada, I said to the kids, "If we're lucky, when we get to Las Vegas, we might run into the killers. <laughs> we might just bump into Brandon Flowers." <laughs> and this is our favourite killers track. <laughs> You were playing Killers yesterday, oh, Adam Shirley. I always a bit of time for Brandon Flowers <laughs> and the rest of them. <laughs> See, Deborah, you couldn't have played <laughs> a better track. Of good taste. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Off this album, I'm more a all the things that I've done kind oh, yeah, of person. Yeah. I've got to say, track yeah. five. It's hard to choose. Isn't it, it is. It is hard to choose. But this one just. It's lovely to me. bring you together over the Killers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this Triple Six ABC Canberra podcast. To subscribe to this or any of our podcasts, go to abc.net.au slash Canberra.